Welcome back. It's another episode of the Disco Posse Podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host. This is a really great chat with David Wind. Uh, for fear of really poorly butchering his name, uh, I'm going to say it's David Kofod Wind. He was very kind enough to walk me through the pronunciation. And David is a fantastic human. He's a founder, a part of the co-founding team of EduFlow, and also a professor and really has a great history on what he brings to the educational world around his work with PeerGrade and EduFlow. Tons of startup lessons, tons of lessons in how to build a good educational platform. So this is a founder's rich pool of lessons. Definitely you want to listen to this one. And if I could, before we get to the episode itself, I'm going to give you some lessons. If you want lessons in making sure that you have everything you need for your data protection need, go and check out our supporters of this fantastic podcast and these great conversations, which is our friends over at Veeam Software. So Veeam Software, I'm a user. I'm a lover of the platform, the technology, and the team. And it's super easy to find out more by heading over to vee.am forward slash discoposse. Literally just those letters, just vee.am forward slash discoposse. You can find out all about it and get connected. So do do that, please. Wait, did I just say do-do? Anyways, you know what I mean. Also, one more thing before you get too far thinking, hey, my data is the thing I got to protect. Well, guess what? Get to protect your data in flight. A great way to do that, especially if you're moving around, you're going to Wi-Fi hotspots, you want to get a VPN. This is for your own safety because there's a lot of bad people out there doing bad things and Wi-Fi is a great place to capture your data. So if you go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash discoposse, you can join me as an ExpressVPN user. I'm a fan and uh, hey, it gets old discoposse, uh, a little bit of jingle if you do go there, which that's not the only reason I do it. I literally use the platform. So go check it out. Oh, right. And speaking of a great place where you often find yourself in places where you need a VPN is at the coffee shop. Save yourself a trip to the coffee shop by going to diabolicalcoffee.com and get your own tasty, devilishly good diabolical coffee beans and also some devilishly and diabolically awesome swag so you don't have to travel around. Anyways, back to the show. This is David Kofod Wind of Edgeflow on the Disco Posse podcast. Hello, my name is David, and I'm the CEO of Edgeflow, and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. I really, really enjoy in advance this discussion because this is a passionate area that I've really enjoyed a lot of work in around education and collaboration and creating engaging collaborative ways to help people learn and advance their skills. So when it the name EduFlow came up and I looked at what you and the team are doing, it was like, all right, this is literally the platform and the concept that I've been waiting for for a long time. And I'm only saddened by the fact that I only just recently learned about you. So, David, if you want to give a quick background for folks that are new to you, let's talk about your your uh, your story, who you are, and then we'll, we'll get into the EduFlow 
the, the story and the value. It's really, really compelling for me. Yeah. So I think I'll try to see if I can wrap it all together in one coherent piece, right? So who am I is kind of the start, right? So I'm uh, I'm David, as, as I said, right? And I today I'm the co-founder of a company, but this whole thing kind of started as, as a, I was a programmer. Uh, I was one of those kids who started to program when I was little. I think I... I was thinking about this the other day. I think I launched my first product or app when I was in eighth grade. So I've been like 13 years old or something. I built like a skateboarding website or something. Oh, wow. Um, it, it, it totally broke. Like uh, I had no ideas about security or anything. So all the passwords got leaked or something. But but it was a good way to get get my hands dirty. I had a sponsor that sponsored a pair of shoes. And, and it was really cool. Um, so, so I've always been a coder, basically. And then I went to university, I studied math, I did a PhD in computer science. And then during my PhD, I got a chance to teach my own course. And I always loved teaching. And I probably also loved teaching more than researching. I found out during my PhD, I wasn't really good at research, but but I had this course and it was about big data and, and everybody apparently loves big data. So I thought I would have 30 students, but I got 150 enrollments the first time. And that wow. was... Uh, that was cool, but it was also a lot more than I had planned for. So I had this course summary where it's like, okay, weekly written assignments, solve all these big problems. And then I would just, you did back at the envelope math, right? And you see, okay, 150 students, weekly assignments. It's like at least 40 hours a week of grading. It does not make any sense, right? So I thought, okay, what, what could I do? And I'd, I'd heard about this idea of peer review before on, Sarah had these courses with peer reviews. I thought, okay, I'll maybe I can get the students to grade each other, and then I save some time, and they can also learn something. So that's what I did. I sat down and started programming, as you always do when you're a programmer, and thought I can build this in a weekend. Right? It won't be too bad. And here I am, seven years later, I'm still working on it. Um, <laughs> but I started cooking up this um, peer review product, basically, to to help solve this problem, um, and then. What happened was that my supervisor thought it was really cool. And he was like an entrepreneurial kind of guy. And he's like, you should sell this to somebody. You should sell it to the department. And it didn't really make any sense, right? I was a, just a PhD student. I was doing this kind of at work. And it wasn't a product. It was more just for me. But he kind of pulled me to the department head's office and said, David is going to sell you something. And I was like, okay, uh, I, I built this thing called peer grade. And uh, you can do this and that. And the department head was pretty skeptical <laughs> to say the least. And he's just like, oh, what does it cost then? $1,000 per course. And he just looked at me really scary. And then I said, okay, but I, then I won't take any teaching assistance because I have the product, right? The, this will be enough. And he was like, well, that sounds like a good deal because the teaching assistant is more expensive than $1,000. So I sold a product now that I didn't I didn't have and I didn't have a company and now I had no TAs as well. So I, I kind of went back back to my office and then I called well I had one TA left, I think. I was like, I got one left. So I called my old high school friend and said, Melda, I I messed up. I promised to sell something that I haven't built. You're a programmer as well. Can you come and help me? And you can be my one TA. But just code this thing with me and then I'll run the course alone. Um, and that's that's how we started back in the day with peer grade. So we we sat down, we built this peer review tool, and we sold the first license to my own department. 
Um, and then it became a company, right? We had to make a company to send the first invoice. Uh, so the whole story of Edgeflow starts with another product, actually, pure grade. Well, and that's the interesting thing that the, the you've literally given like every Silicon Valley story, right? Is that you know I had a concept, I found a, a, a prospective customer, you sold them the idea, they liked it so much that they wanted to buy it right there. And then you go hunting down. And the funny thing is you had a chief revenue officer who was just basically saying, hey, David, come over here. He's going to sell you something. (laughs) There's so many incidents, right, that are so random that you can't bank on it. You just it just has to happen on its own at some point. Right. And this in this case, it was like I'd seen Coursera do peer reviews. I'd worked on some algorithm a year earlier that I could use for this. I was doing a PhD and I had this problem on my own. I had my old friend, I had a supervisor who was super easy going with entrepreneurship and all of these things combined made this happen, right? But like if any of those things didn't work, it wouldn't have happened, right? So it's kind of crazy how many random accidents have to happen at the same time for anything to to work out, right? But that's, that's the way most companies are born, I guess. You solve your own problem at the right time, at the right place, and then it becomes bigger than you think it will. Yeah, and I think part of the the thing that we have as a challenge in telling the stories of of startups is often the compression of the time frame. And there are sort of heroic moments that occur, like weekends of coding. And like you hear about many, many companies that they'll have a hackathon and it becomes what it will be the landmark product for them. Like this is usually it's just this idea like we've got this you know a brand new thing we want to develop and so they they hack it and they code it together really quickly then they solidify it and all of a sudden they realize it was built generally because you understood there was a problem that existed when the reverse happens where you say i'm going to i'm going to take a blank slate of paper and i'm going to you know write down an idea and i'm going to code something to towards that idea it's very different than you having true lived experience and an immediate problem. So the speed that you had to move at was abnormal just because of that. But it's it's really is a fantastic story, and that's why I love the the background. Now, your own ability to influence what the product is, that's where I think is also interesting for folks that you were you know, an instructor, you were a student. So you really understood both sides of it. When you talk to other founders and other folks that are thinking of developing a product, that's actually a bit of a rarity. Do you find that yourself? Like when you talk to other founders or other people that are are in the tech space, that the fact that you really had direct experience, that that helped a lot probably in, in the ability to develop quickly. Yeah, it totally does, right? It, it it doesn't only have upside, right? There is it's it's massively helpful to be your own customer initially because you don't have to talk to anybody else. You can just the first 20 features you build, just build whatever you would like to have in the product. And then then you have one customer that you're really building for who is yourself. And and it makes iterating extremely fast. And you can communication is always tricky, right? So like when you have an idea in your head and you have to get it in somebody else's head, that can be complicated, but you don't have to do that in the beginning if you're the customer as well. You can just take your idea and code it. Um, but plus we had our students, right? So the first 
four months, five months of, of peer grades live, we met them every Tuesday for, for four hours, right? And they would line up outside our office and, and next to me and just give feedback and tell me how much it sucked or whatever. And then we would fix it and we would see all these weird bugs. And so it helped a lot. The, the challenge is if you're very weird, then you're building for an audience of, of only you. Like maybe you are so rare, but the world is big. It's it's unusual that you are so so rare, right? But but that is the the challenge that you could be building for a very niche uh, audience if you just build for yourself. What and you really highlight an important piece there that getting feedback. So that feedback loop in in iteration and and feature development, you sort of had a captive audience because they were they were obviously engaged in it, right? They they had little choice because you had little choice. This is the only way you could you could host 150 students at, at once. So And they had was, even less rights. They had to I just forced it on them. They're like, now you're gonna use this. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, this is how I I ordered, I run this course. You have to deal with it. Well David, the one thing that I think of like however many university profs that I've bumped into your interactive process is beautiful because it's so much better. You're you built this for the benefit of the students to be able to let them do what they could do in a large cohort versus a lot of you know, I find a lot of professors, their whole goal is to write their own text that then they can make it mandatory and charge $180 for the text so that they've always got 30 brand new customers every semester. It everything about your approach to it was meant to make their experience better and coincidentally make your experience better. And yeah. that in itself too is a rarity that most folks just don't have the ability to change the flow of engagement so so well. I think that's one of the things that made peer grade work is, is there's a lot of these tech products for education, they they only win on one of the sides. Either they help the teacher or they help the students, but then that often the trade-off is kind of a reverse on the other side, right? Um, what What's kind of magical, not about peer grading itself, but about peer feedback as a concept, right, is that it has, it has benefits on both sides. It's not perfect for students. It's not perfect for instructors, but it's pretty good for both parties. And that's that's quite magical, I think. And and you would see people coming for both reasons, right? You would see some instructors saying, I don't care, I'll I'll spend a lot more time, but I really think the learning benefits here are big. And you would have some who snook up after the workshop and said, I love this, I don't have to grade anymore, right? They were just there for yeah. their own benefit, but still the students would learn something, right? So it's it has the this kind of magic doubleness to it, I think. When as a as an educational content creator. How did it shape your ability to create new curriculum, new content more rapidly? And I'd say more effectively, like that's that's really the goal. I've created online courses. Then, you know, of course, it seems like it's OK when I when I put it down on video. And then when you go through the peer review process, that's when you find like, ah. Yeah, like you, you, we have the curse of knowledge, especially as an instructor. It's difficult sometimes to step back versus mm -hmm. that when you have that highly engaged peer review process 
it gives you a lot of checkpoints in which you can say like, oh, yeah, I moved past a concept too quickly or I spent too long on one concept. So how did, did you obviously felt the benefit and how did you know that this was going to be, you know, worth building? I didn't know it was going to help in learning. Honestly, I was a PhD in math, right? I knew it was going to help with my grading because that was kind of obvious. I could just decide not to grade anything. And that was like 40 hours a week saved. That's a lot of time. And then, and I hadn't read any papers about the pedagogical psychology or whatever, right? That kind of, that happened later when I started interacting with the students and like figuring out, okay, it works for grading optimization. Now, how do we make it learning effective as well? Um, some of the things that they kind of come before you even touch the student side, right? Because you're like, okay, we have to have them grade each other. Well, how, what criteria are we going to give them? I guess we have to develop some kind of criteria. Oh, you learned something is called a rubric. Then what, what do we do with the, what kind of rubric do we build? And then you talk to the students and you say, I'm going to have you do peer review. And they say, mm -mm, <laughs> we're not doing that. And you're like, <laughs> oh no, why not? Oh, we don't trust each other. Hmm. Okay, what do we do then? Uh, what about, so we developed this feature early on called flagging, where uh, if the students got feedback they didn't trust or like or accept or whatever, they could click a flag and then I would review it. And that was kind of like a safety valve for them. Um, but that also gave all sorts of benefits, right? We would have like interactions about all the feedback that was confusing. We built in such so something where like, if I give you feedback, then you give me feedback on my feedback. Uh, we call that feedback reflections and all of these things kind of they came as we started running the courses and started seeing okay this is where they get annoyed this is where it stops working how do we fix it and then we kind of pile different features on top to make it a good a good experience so that all came as we were running it uh, which i think was super interesting there's a good face i think in the product as well it's like very in interesting like talking to students face to face every day uh, I kind of missed that actually. Yeah, that I think that's really the the advantage when you're doing product development that a lot of uh, traditional, you know, engineers sort of forget is the the interactivity is what really it speeds the process. It ensures that you're actually developing towards something that you know will be used, uh, and it's also just just great like to hear real direct honest feedback even positive or negative where you're like hey i've got this amazing feature and i, I spent all the time coding it and it's beautiful and you know, we've introduced 17 new javascript frameworks to make it a really neat user flow and then you talk to the user and they're like no i, I would never actually never do that that's that's not the way i use the product yeah. and a, a very common thing i see is then sort of the engineering team or product management if not engaged interactive will be like, wait, well, you're using it wrong. <laughs> like this is, I know I'm building the product. Only I can know this product this well. You're like, no, the- Why are the users so dumb? I, exactly. Why do they keep using this product the incorrect way? It's, I remember it was a, I always quote that sort of Steve Jobs thing, remember when they had the Apple, when the antenna like problem, and they called the it the antenna wrong. gate. And this whole thing is that you're holding the phone wrong. I'm like, well, I, 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 I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> a lot of people are holding it wrong. Yeah, so we could probably hold peer grade wrong as well. There's ways to basically use the product for sure. Yeah. Cause I, I built, uh, I, I was doing some work myself around creating, um, uh, engaging in mentoring with a lot of folks and I mentor people 
And then I would talk to other people who were doing mentoring. And I would often say, like, how do you find the way that you best match with somebody who would be a good, you know, mentee or mentor? And it was funny, the more I did research on it, you know, real, you know, quick research, not super formal, is that I would say, like, they look for the skill sets, they look for, you know, their current role. Is it something that I would like? You ideally want somebody who's done the thing you would like to do and help them guide you towards it. But the most common features that made it a good relationship and a good outcome was common hobbies, uh, you know, other shared interests, other historical things, geolocation. There was a lot of things that increased the chances of a successful mentoring outcome. And so I actually built, built this app that was really mostly a dating app that in the end, you didn't get a date, you got a mentor. And using all these criteria, I was like, this is fantastic. I could actually match people up very beautifully. And so I built this thing and I had this other, you know, a couple of the quick features that I was thinking would be important. And yet the moment that I shared it with somebody, they're like, I need these three things. And, and you know, they never clicked on the tab that I thought would be like spectacular. You get to go to this beautiful dashboard and you can see this information. They're like, they... They used it anecdotally much differently than I thought, you know, mm -hmm. the, the data would drive. So it was a, a good lesson. And then I realized as a solo non-coder that I was in real trouble. So I sort of abandoned the, the project, unfortunately, but uh, it was yeah. a good experience. Yeah, and now, I guess then I owe you the rest of the story, right? So we got to the point where PeerGrade is up and running. Then, then it became a real company, right? We found our third co-founder, Simon. Um, because I'm a mathematician, Melde, he's a physicist, and we can build things, but we can't make them nice. So Simon is a designer, and he kind of came in and helped us. Um, then we went down the, the classical startup path, right? We raised some capital from some angel investors. We went to Y Combinator in uh, San Francisco, and that was a, a physical thing. Um, and then we raised some more money and, and kind of hired a team and so on. And PeerGrade worked kind of well. It was growing. It, it, it still grows today. But I think after, what was it, like three or four years, we started to see, I think, the limitations to the product and the market that we are a product team. We like building products. We like coding. We like that kind of, we're not, we can sell our own product, but we're not like driven as a sales culture or whatever. And peer, peer grading software was not a big demand in the market. Overall, it was, there was some demand, but not enough. So we would have to go and create demand everywhere. It's like, hey, you need to do peer feedback. And then when we right. convinced them of that, then we could start selling them peer feedback software. But there wasn't even really a need. So that was one part of what happened. And then people really loved the product, but they just kind of wanted a little bit more than what we had. Like, oh, you can do peer feedback. What about teacher feedback? What about self-reviews? What about other forms of peer feedback and what about submitting again and all these things and we're like yeah i guess so and kind of try to make it work but it was already too late peer grade was getting a little bit technically complicated at that point so we we sat down in the summer house in 19 i think and said okay what should we do what about starting over and then um, there was like i think it was april 19 and we we came up with the name a, a couple of days later and we that had zero lines of code again. And we said, okay, we're building peer grade. If we had all the knowledge we have now, we would start over. 
So basically, Edgeflow started as peer grade 2.0, which is like, let's build it again. Slightly more flexible, better code base. And then over the next year, we realized a lot of things. But one thing we realized is that maybe we shouldn't do a better version of peer grade. Maybe we should build something different. Um, where we rethink things a little bit more. And that's what it eventually became Edgeflow. Um, so Edgeflow is a, a learning platform. Call it has many names, right? But it's a way to run online courses. Um, and where we differ from the 9 million other online course tools is that it's a way to run online courses that are very active and very collaborative. And that's where the story is important, right? Because everybody will say they build active and collaborative and social learning experiences, but we have a whole product just about collaborative feedback that we took as foundation for Edgeflow. So everything you could do in peer grade, you can also do in Edgeflow. So there's a lot of functionality that is inherently social, collaborative, and active in there. So, so the courses that people run on Edgeflow today that, that you can't run anywhere, anywhere else are the courses that are much more than videos and quizzes, basically. I think that's a huge differentiator, too, that the the thing we've got a lot of these days, I'm, I'm a user of a few platforms myself, right, is this purely like video hosting and flow of course. And purely in the like getting from beginning to end, you know, chopping, measuring, maybe a couple of surveys in the middle. But it's most of the collaboration is just comments, which is not actually collaborative. It's it's like when people always tell me, they said like, you know, I said, I've got too many meetings. They said, well, you like collaboration, so you must enjoy it. I said, I like collaboration. I don't like meetings. Yeah. And that's the difference between comments and collaborative feedback. Collaborative feedback allows you to take that comment and comment on the comment and then take that and feed it back into a total course. Like there are a lot of things that go beyond just someone writing good module really yeah. fast. I struggled with it. Like you get those and that's, that's interesting, but then there's no carry on, right? It's, it's. And that's what we saw, right? So we were looking at all the competitors and seeing like, what are they saying on their landing pages? And they like 50% of them say we have peer feedback functionality. And what they have is people can submit something, which means they can upload a file. And then you see a list of all the files in the course. And then for each file, there's a, a, a comment feed, like on Facebook, where you can comment. And people write, awesome, exclamation mark. And yeah. that's peer feedback in their world. For us, we have like, that's like nothing, right? Peer feedback needs so much. You need rubrics. You need careful allocation of who's giving feedback to whom. You need feedback on the feedback. You need flagging. You need there's a ton of things you need to take care of if you want peer, peer feedback to work. And that's the key, I think. Peer grade was complicated because there's a lot of things you need to do to make peer feedback even work. If you don't do all the things, you'll get nothing. You'll have no effects. And if you do all the things, then it suddenly starts magically working. And that's, I think, a, another kind of underlying thing in Edgeflow is that the, the learning processes you build and can build in Edgeflow are very scaffolded, very structured. It's not just like come and take what you want and go here and there. It's very carefully like you do this. What you do here is then fed into this other activity where you then see something. But it's, it depends on what you did in this third activity, what you'll see. And you can create these very custom learning experiences that it requires a little bit of like 
almost like programming, right? But like setting up the the flow for the on the instructor side. But then the learning experience for the learners will be like personal and 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 very interesting. So that's where we try to differ. But the challenge is on the landing pages. We all say we can do everything, right? So you have yeah. to like really get in to the product and start playing with it before you really see the differences. I think. Well, I would say that EduFlow is to online course hold you know hosting what salesforce is to outlook contact management so while there are notes features in my local contacts you know view it's not collaborative it's not it it doesn't get better it doesn't it doesn't let me take that thing and do another thing with it you because you can drive flow through feedback because you can create that customizable flow and then in get engagement at our true rubric of measurement, it's it is really head and shoulders above what these other things do, which is purely course hosting, like a video hosting. And like I said, it's fantastic. There's a lot of folks that's maybe all they need. But if you truly are creating corporate enablement, even sales enablement, like true enablement content versus lecture content. I think that's super interesting. That's very important, right? Because, and, and that's also why no product is for everybody, right? There's a ton of people who are using, uh, like they're, they're, the thing they want to do is they want to sell a course. They want to make some money on Twitter by selling a course. If that's your goal, I don't think it's a bad idea necessarily to do a video course because if people pay for the course, whether they complete it and whether they learn something will not make you richer. It essentially, right? Of course, it will be good right. if they like the course, then they'll share it. But people don't, people buy courses for non-obvious reasons sometimes. It's not always trivial to figure it out, right? And another example is Coursera, right? So Coursera, the way they make money is they sell the certificate at the end of the course. If nobody right. completes the course, they don't make any money on certificates. So if you look at Coursera's paid courses, there's no peer review. Why? Because peer review is hard, right? You have to write something. Like, oh, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's very effective for learning, but learning is also hard, right? So if your business model is getting people through the course, you don't necessarily want to make it hard. If your business model is built on getting people to learn something, well, then the courses might have to be hard. And that's why I think we sell, we have fewer customers in the category where people are selling online growth marketing courses or whatever on Twitter. And we have more customers in internal company training. So, for example, Google is one of our customers, maybe the biggest customer. And what's interesting about Google is when we talked to them a while ago, I asked them, like, why did you buy PeerGrid and Edge? Like, what, what's going on here? Like, this is when they bought into it a long time ago, we were basically a school product and I didn't get it. And they said, that's exactly why we liked it. Because you guys, everything else we look at is like corporate training software built by corporate training people and they don't really get it. But you yeah. came from education. You came from a place where you had rubrics and you had all of this. Because in a university, you don't want the students to complete the course. You want them to learn, right? You, you're as a professor. I'm okay with failing half the students if they don't know anything. It's fine, right? So, so these incentives are different, and I think we cater more to the community of people where they actually have to learn something. So. Courses you can build in Edgeflow can be really hard. <laughs> and that's it's not for everybody, right? 
No, and, and I think that's the, the the best thing you can do as a founder as well is immediately disqualify, you know, folks that seem like they could be customers, but will take you down a very different path. And and understanding who your real customer persona is, Google would be, you know, in hindsight now, it's like they're obviously a, a great fit. They're dominantly well-educated engineers. They've been through that system, so they would map to it very beautifully, and they would understand the value of that. And the funny thing is, you know, if you thought, I'm going to go to somebody to sell them, Google would almost seem like the last one. You're like, they're filled with millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of PhDs. Wouldn't they just have built this themselves? But for them, it's not their core focus. They don't want to build an educational product. They want to build products that will drive revenue in other ways. So it actually is a, a perfect pairing. So congratulations on that customer because they they will be just by scale and and capability a really, really fantastic way to to you know get into the industry. Yeah, we love working with them as well. It's just really nice people actually. And this is where it's interesting too, this idea of customization. You know, I think I mentioned sort of the Salesforce as a, a comparative, right? I've even called, you know, Salesforce for a couple of, you know, small, like say real estate companies, just folks that I was helping out, you know, years ago. And so they say, I need a good CRM. So, well, you know, I would call Salesforce and said, I, I need to get set up, you know, to walk the walk them through it. And they would say, no, you you cannot do that. Like we need to interview them. We need to, and what was interesting about the onboarding process was they really wanted to qualify their customer. So I'm interested in in your team, David, when somebody does come to EduFlow, what does that onboarding process look like? Yeah, so we actually have two types of customers. We have self-service and we have the premium customers. Um, we're a small team. And I don't think we'll want to be a big team. We're, we don't mind being bigger, but we don't want to be big. Because I don't like managing, honestly. I, got, I like working with good people, and but I don't want to have middle managers. Then I know I've fucked it up right there. <laughs> <That would be laughs> exactly. So like, I like working with the people directly, right? So And to stay small and grow, you have to do things at scale. And, and self-service is part of that, right? So... We have a self-service component to the product where people just sign up and use it. We got a the last customer I think I saw on on Stripe was like a Romanian church. Never thought about oh, that, wow. right? And never talked to them. They just found out they could use it and, and signed up. Um, but then we have the premium customers, and those those we qualify more. We talk to them, and and this is also where I actually turn down people regularly. I try to be very honest on a sales call. If I can hear they're looking for something, we're not. I'll recommend a competitor because that's much better than trying to win a deal we'll lose eventually anyways, right? So talking about like picking your customers, right? One of the features that we don't have that everybody thinks we, we should have is payments. You cannot pay for a course in Edgeflow because of the thing I said before, right? That the people who charge for their courses generally don't have the right incentives. Um, you can still do it, right? But you have to like make an integration with another tool and then you can charge with the other tool and then enroll in Edgeflow. But I, we know that once we start like going down that path of like charging people for courses, then we become a marketing tool and not a, a learning tool. Right. Like many of our competitors are, are doing, right? They have a ton of features around giving coupons and 
sending out drip email campaigns. And it's not really related to the learning, which is what we care about. But, but yeah, we talk to the customers in these uh, early calls, right, and figure out what do they want to do? How can we help them do it? If they want to do something, we're not recommend them to go somewhere else. If they are doing something with us, then they should start. And we try to get people in small and grow with us. Um, often people come to us and say, okay, I think according to our plans, we'll have 10,000 learners in a year. But right now we have none. And then it's perfect. Then perfect. Start with the free plan. Set up your courses and start growing. And if you hit 10,000 learners, here's the price you're going to see at that point. But don't talk about don't don't do that right now, right? You don't need to pay us yeah. money before you have real scale. And for us, it's fine, right? Because if they already start building their courses in our product and they start growing, then it becomes kind of complicated for them to get out again. So it's easier for us to just say, like, we have a free product, go test it, go play with it. Um, it's the way to have a small sales team and have a lot of customers is to make the customers able to like look at the product themselves. Well, and looking at your your tiers of you know the the platform, you actually do something which is fantastic, and I it's I I, I would use it to measure most other people that have the like you know bronze, silver, gold you know type of 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 tiering. Your your free platform has very few limit like almost no limitations other than just like the amount of of course content like you know storage wise, but. You're not limiting users, students, anything. It's and it's funny that as you move into the paid platform, then you begin to sort of like segment it a little bit more. So I love that, and it, it's kind of like the way that when somebody won't post any pricing, guilty as charged, right? Like so, I I work for a company and we we didn't post pricing publicly because there was a a nurturing process to understand the customer story, and so it was. But I sort of joke when I wanted buy a platform or test a platform out and they had this real difficult sign-on process. They want to interview you. They don't have pricing. And I said, look, I can tell you how much it costs to send this to space. I can go to spacex.com forward slash rideshare and I can find out exactly what it costs for it to send that. And maybe I want to add a couple of stuffed cats. I know how big they are. I can send them to space and it costs me exactly what it says on the website. So, so if you're a goofy SaaS product, doesn't have public pricing, I've got a question what you're doing in this onboarding process. <laughs> so I love it's your something we think a lot about, right? Um, and I think the, the bad news is that it would probably benefit us at least in the short term to not have pricing. Um, because the premium plans that we have are significantly more expensive than our self-service plans. And then when right. people see the premium pricing, they're like, whoa, I thought, but pro is so cheap. Why is premium so expensive? And they're like, oh, we shouldn't have shown them the pro pricing. <laughs> so I think we could win, we could win in the short term by not showing any pricing. But I think so personally, I never touch a product that doesn't have public pricing. And that's because I'm a technical co-founder for a small company. I'm the persona that also reads hacker news. And these kind of people who are like, I'm allergic to salespeople. I do not want to talk to them. If I can't buy self-service, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Um, not everybody's like me, right? Google is not like me. They buy. They take calls, they have security processes and whatever. But so, but long term, I think the way to dominate and win a market like this, where there's we have a list of competitors in our notion database of like it's like 200 products in there, right? There's a ton of competitors. The way to, to win here is 
is to do something different. And, and one of the things we're able to do is that we have a self-service product that people can actually start using on their own. So we will become the entry-level product. We'll become your first learning platform for internal right. training. We won't be the biggest one. We won't be an SAP competitor necessarily. But people will, when they're small, when they're 50 people, they don't need SAP yet. They need to run an onboarding course, for example. And then they'll be like us and they'll buy the product that fits them, the self-service product with our public pricing. And then when there are 100 people or 1,000 people, they're already in Edgeflow. They already use it. They're happy. Uh, so they won't ever go to SAP. Right. Um, that's kind of the goal. And I think it's a, it can be a winning strategy. Paul Graham has a good essay about being the, the entry-level product in your category. Um, and that's basically our approach, right? Premium, entry-level pricing. We still make most of our money on the premium customers, but we don't, a lot of those premium customers start as small customers, right? They start right. on their own, they start free, they do $20 a month, and then suddenly, boom, they're a premium customer. Yeah, there's a, a so Paul Graham, uh, you know, is he, many of his essays stand out. And actually, that's one of the, the ones is this concept of, and it's led really to a lot of people that tap called the topic of value pricing. And you're getting this, you know, touchless self-service experience. And so it's actually very smart to price it according to quick entry. And then the moment you go to this next level, HubSpot is a great example. They do the same thing. Now, I, I won't quote their numbers, you know, because the pricing may change. But so, yeah. but it's something like like twenty dollars a month, forty dollars a month, twelve hundred and fifty dollars a month. Like the moment you have like a certain trigger, and it's either like number of contacts, com, you know, type of email, like adding uh, if then else, you know, flow into your your email nurtures you immediately move to this massive price bump but if you're using the free or the you know the the lower tier product already and you're really involved in it and you're using the adjacent products you start to say well what's the value i'm getting from this like well i'm selling product i'm getting customers then you attach the value to the price yeah, way different. That's what uh, CRM we're using, right? I love it. Yeah, we use HubSpot, of course. It's uh, it's it was easy to start when we didn't have any money when we were young and when we needed our first CRM. We had we didn't want to go with Salesforce. They had to, we had to call them. I actually did take a call with them. Ugh. and then we're like, oh, but HubSpot is kind of the same and it's free. Let's do HubSpot, and here we are. We're still on HubSpot, right? Seven years later. That's it, you know, and it, it that ability to to do that is fantastic, and I think you know. If you're looking for just like mass market, quick turn, like you said, if somebody wants to just sell courses on, you know, how to do, you know, amateur photography, how to do like, I, I have a simple course on how to do effective product demos. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very fixed. It comes with an ebook. You know, I have at the end, I have an interactive thing, but it's like a, I set up a zoom call, you know, every month. So it's very different that, but it's fixed. It's simple. You consume at your pace. There's nothing more to it. I honestly don't want feedback other than I liked the course or I didn't like the course. And the number of people that buy it is my greatest feedback because I don't want to really build a truly interactive educational experience. It's meant to be like, I've got a couple of things that it's basically a webinar 
that I've cut into slices so that you don't have to watch a two and a half hour webinar. And people like it and it's great. So fixed value, Perfect. fixed price, that's all that I need. But the moment that I want to, I look at corporate enablement products all the time and what they do, and David, you know this pain, right? Is they just take those platforms and then even worse, they give them these like awful, like 1990s sort of like, you know, pictures of people sitting around tables and like pointing at things. They've, they've taken all the worst clip arts, you know, and then, you know, in a little pop-up comes over, you know, click here. And it like, they force you to like interact with it. And, but it's more for like compliance training and mm. human resources stuff, like legal and compliance stuff. That's what drives that. They don't care about someone actually being involved in the enabled as a part of it. They're just like, make sure they take the anti-money laundering training every year. You're required by law to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges, right? Like there's some a lot of the people who come to us to look at our product, they come with an Excel sheet in their hand, right? And say like, Dear Eduflow, we have uh, investigated the range of products and you're one of our top whatever. Can you please fill out this short Excel sheet? And then I open it. And it's like 250 rows of requirements. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, there's a column called uh, priority. Oh, it's all high priority. Then never mind. So then I have like a 250 row high priority requirement doc where there's like, it's very important that we can do all these insane things. You wonder, like, how did they do this, right? Like, and it, it's probably like they send it out to everybody. Everybody can add their own requirements, and then they just sum it up and they generate this massive list. And then that's how they buy. Like, how many points do you get in our massive requirement doc? It's a terrible way to buy products, right? It's it will satisfy. It'll make everybody kind of mad. Nobody will be super angry, but nobody will be really excited, right? Yeah. And and the way for us around that is to if they're already using our product. If they already know the value it brings, then the requirement doc will look slightly different when it ends up in our hands eventually, because they know now what they should be asking about, not what, not all the other things, right? So, I hate I hate the conversations that start with that doc because you just know, just know nobody's gonna win, nobody's gonna be happy at the end of this. Oh, and it's we like I've gone through RFP processes in in so many places, and it's like or even just competitive, like, how are you different than X, right? And and so what do you do? We do exactly the same thing that every company does. You know, you hand them a, a feature matrix with Harvey balls. You're on the left with all full Harvey balls and one three-quarter Harvey ball because you don't want to be arrogant. And then all of them are like one-quarter Harvey. Like, it's, and then I tell people when I do competitive training for my own company, said, so you know that if you just move the logos, and switch them that's what the competitor will say and they can say it because they're going to box us out with a word they use in the sentence you know and it's like it's and it'll just, be like non-meaningful things like uh, great support we have that the others don't like uh, right. meaningful pricing like what does it even mean right like <laughs> they'll make up things that don't exist or like they'll just have vague terms like the best user experience well that's us and not the others it's like totally uh, opinionated stuff. And I hate those. We don't have any of those matrices because I just don't like them. One but of the greatest. Work. That's the problem. <laughs> well, that's it. it. It unfortunately becomes, especially when you get to like a true like RFP, the, the measurement is, it's the questions become very vanilla. 
the responses become very vanilla. You try to nuance words so that will isolate you as being differentiated, but in the end, it, it isn't. And the only advantage that those things get is quite often it gets rid of the some of the marketing language. We try to hammer it in there because we that's that's how we differentiate by messaging. And you're like, no, use the bloody product. You know, use the product, and you'll see the differentiation. And and that's what you're hoping to get to. This whole pre-qualification process is uh, sad that we still have to go through it. <laughs> well, I've started saying no unless they want to talk to me. So if they send over a doc, I say like, I looked at the doc for five minutes. It looks kind of fine. Are you willing to take an hour on the phone with me and figure out what's actually important here and see a demo of the product? Because you're not, if you're not going to do that, I'm not going to fill out your 250 row Excel sheet because then you yeah. you just send it out to. It's it's easy for them. They just send it out to 100 vendors rather than they hope they get the work done for them. Now talk about meaningful work and stuff that has a greater impact. Your description of when, when you went from this idea of what can I do around peer measurement? We've got this great product. We've got a company. We've got a successful you know, company that's running. You, then you say, we want to create you know, what would become EduFlow. Wiping the slate and beginning from zero. Did you think that you would do that? And and what are the real sort of both advantages and disadvantages to you taking that approach? It's very hard, right? I think there's some there's some easy wins, right? You can start over on the code base and you can like delete my old code when I was programming. I didn't know a lot, right? So like that go that goes away. That's nice. Um you get to you get a lot of customer feedback, customers, data, all of these things that you have a, a much clearer picture. Because when, when I started, right, on peer grid, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know it was going to be a product. So I didn't even have a table of users because it was just for me, right? So I didn't even need login. So like, it just, if you have a, this happenstance beginning, it, it has, to, it evolves to be some kind of Frankenstein, right? And then when you start over and you know, okay, we already have hundreds of customers and so on, you, you can, you can paint a much more clear picture of the end. Um, so design-wise, it just becomes a lot more coherent. The big problem is that things take time. I think what most entrepreneurs do wrong is that they stop too early. It really takes a long time to get something to work often. And if you just go for long enough, random things will happen once in a while that will just propel you forward. Um, and what we underestimated is how much momentum we had on peer grade, right? So We've been going for three, four years. We're like, things are going well, it's growing. And we think, okay, we'll build a better product. Then it's just accelerate even faster, right? So we, we spent a year building Edgeflow from scratch and they were like, okay, now Edgeflow is ready. Peer grade is still going up and Edgeflow is just like, nothing is happening. And we're like, yeah. shit. <laughs> they would just invest a whole year and it's much worse. But it just it had to start from scratch again. We had to get momentum again. And then slowly it starts building up. And now Edgeflow is growing faster than peer grade, but it took a while, right? It took a while to, to, to get the ball rolling because we've gotten, we've gotten to the point with peer grade where people started writing, writing academic papers about it. We started getting mentioned in books people were writing. And like, wow. that takes a while, right? To get to the point where it's such a, a household name. We have all Danish universities as customers. We have most 
Danish high schools as, as users or customers today, but they know us as peer grades, right? We're the peer grade people, peer, David from peer grade, right? Like you just, yeah. the brand becomes so strong as well. So starting from scratch is hard, but you can start with a bank, right? You can start with customers, you can start with revenue, with knowledge and, and a brand and an audience, right? So it's, it is easier to start the second time, but it's also, it will still take time, I think. Yeah, even if I think of it, sort of the biggest example, right? If 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 the founders of Google left Google and started another startup right now, the only thing they would get a lot of is investors, not customers. Even though we know what as a customer of Google services I can get from it. We we do know is as an investor you'll probably make a gargantuan amount of money in ROI you know like so, so the, you, there's that level of trust so like as a founding team people are like yeah these are these are the guys that that brought us something that we know and we trust and it's got this incredible market momentum but they will always as much as they love it they are always going to still wait before they buy the product or they license the product they will they'll watch and it's always funny I've even in in stuff that I've done in community projects, like tech community stuff, all the time, I started running a, a a sort of an online competition. We literally did a reality competition for IT architecture, and we took like twelve people and then narrowed it down and made it almost like a like an ink master. We called it virtual design master, and I would go to everybody and say like they knew what I did as far as you know speaking engagements. They knew how I engaged people and and ran these small community groups. And so I had this fantastic thing. I had all of this recognition. I have all of this trust of this incredible peer network. And I said, what we need is we need sponsors to have prizes. And every single one said, this looks great. Love the idea. We'll be in for season two. I'm like, there won't be a season two if there's no season one and I need prize money for season one. And so it was sort of grinding and scraping even with that that history that I could have brought to it, it was really, really interesting to us. So I love that you've you've highlighted that as a thing. Like look, even YouTubers, right? They could have a fantastically strong YouTube channel and following. And then they say, I'm I've got another channel. Well, it starts from zero and it's it it may tick up faster as they've got a if they've got a huge fan base, but it's more than zero friction to move people over to that thing. And that's literally click and subscribe. Like that's yeah. the simplest possible low friction thing you can have. You are bringing people into a different product that has different outcomes. It's yeah, and you'll, just, you'll see it all over and over also in consumer, right? So recently there was um, Clubhouse was a big thing, right? They really yeah. managed to drum up a lot of attention with the help of their investors and recent Horowitz and so on. And then people are like, is this going to, this looks like it's going to be massive. And then it took a while, but then the inner mechanics retention started really showing, right? And then like, oh, it didn't actually work. But they got very large before people started churning. And now it's like slowly dying, right? And you you see this constantly with, with famous people, especially who launch products. They'll get a lot of attention coming out the gate. They'll get a lot of signups in the early days. And then when when the PR is over, right, then... It's just a, a slow ramp down to, yeah. to nothing because the churn is too high, right? And people just disappear. So I think if the churn is, if your retention is good and all of that, like PI and so on can help a lot. If it's not, it doesn't matter. It will, you'll be 
It'll just take longer for you to die eventually. Uh, the more you get up in the beginning. When you when you began, how did you introduce measurement of success in product consumption? Measurement of success, I think it's I don't know actually. So we've always been asked by people in the old days, like, hey, so like how do I know if, if peer grade and edge flow works? Do you have efficacy studies and so on? And I was always like, honestly, I was just like, first of all, it's complicated to run an, an, an efficacy study on an educational product because like maybe it'll work for Mrs. Anderson in sixth grade in Ohio, whatever, and then it won't work for the next person. So that's hard. You need real big intervention studies. Second of all, what if, it, what if it doesn't work? I don't want to run some kind of third-party unbiased study and then they publish that peer-grade and HBO sucks, right? So I was like a little bit hesitant, even though I had a pretty good feeling about it to do anything. And then I, I started thinking more about it. And then when I started to see how complicated it would be to do an actual efficacy study, we decided to ignore it and say, we don't know better than the users. But if the instructors, if the teachers keep coming back and they keep using this product semester after semester, something is working. Right. Like, because they know their classrooms and they're busy, right? They need, they have every, there's an opportunity cost to using one intervention in their courses, right? Using peer review means they can't do another thing. So if they keep using that, then surely there must be some value they're getting. So eventually we, and this is actually also by combinators, internal ed tech startup advisors, like just talk about user growth. If your users are growing, something is working. Don't worry too much about efficacy studies. And that's kind of how we landed on it. And um, we've done some and it works. So it's all good, but we didn't go all in on like trying to set up some official study. Um, I think it would have helped with sales sometimes. They would have liked some kind of cool looking white paper, but for us, it didn't matter too much. As long as people liked it, we were happy. Yeah, and I guess that's in in some spaces it's necessary. You know, especially large like enterprise products, they have to have the sort of like the Gartner and the Forrester like economic impact valuation study and stuff like that. That's, but it's way further down the road and very different target audience. It's that you know big enterprise buyer, but they're looking to like affect the. P&L for their a business unit in their company versus your, you've got a better niche uh, and an easily measurable, more easily measurable value. Just like you said, retention. If I can get retention, then that that's that's where we know that if people are still using it, we're doing something right. And there now, let's you know, we can dig in further on on it. I, I think also it's like a, as a researcher, mathematician, like I'm also just like a skeptic of any simple answers, right? Like my wife is also a researcher and she researches in complexity theory in like the humanities. But well, the common thing at home is like, it's complicated, right? It's always yeah. complicated. And all these companies will try landing page with like 20% better, whatever. No, like it's not that simple. Nothing works that simple, right? If I send more code emails, but they're worse, still won't get me more money, right? Or if I do my support tickets faster, that doesn't lead to revenue growth in itself, right? It's so complicated. And I think that's my stance on everything, especially with our product, we're in like a training product. Of course, if you train your employees better, something good will come out of it at the end. 
but I have no possible way to connect the use of Edgeflow to like top line revenue or something for a corporate. I could try and I can make some numbers up in Excel, right? But don't trust it, right? It doesn't make yeah. any sense. And if our competitors are doing it, they're just lying, right? But I, I don't really believe in those kind of things. Yeah, and it's it's a really tricky thing, especially talk about you know the educated founders, right? You're, you're a mathematician, a physicist, and a designer. Like you're like the, the most perfect sort of set of folks to put into a room and said you're going to come out of here with a product, and and you know it's going to be all the things. You could just go back to Y Combinator every year probably and and create new new products. I love that the diversity uh, and the strength of the. Uh, you know, your own backgrounds really are. A, that also ties into now. the curse of knowledge that you mentioned, right? Like this, like it has many sides to it. One is like the knowledge of things, but also this idea that as a statistician, right? I did like machine learning and statistics. I know stats are fake, right? Most statistics yeah. are just lies. And it means that I don't trust them, but you have to remember that other people do. And but so you can you can have this like weird bias to not do things that work because you would you would see through it yourself, um, and I think that's a trap sometimes to fall into, uh, not selling enough, not right marketing enough, not talking big enough words because you wouldn't fall for it, but most customers aren't like you. So yeah, that is really that that is a tricky one too, especially when you're a technical founder. You you're already like I know this is BS. Like I I don't want to say these things because it's like, but I, I mean I joked with somebody recently and I realized I'm like oh I should actually quote this. So my podcast happens to be in the top one percent of all podcasts, and. I, it was like three different platforms have kind of shown me the statistic. I'm like, okay, this is this is really cool. I could say I'm in this top one percent. Well, there's three point three million podcasts, so like I'm I could be the bottom of that one percent, and there are hundreds of thousands of you know, competitors above me. But to most people, you just say. I have a podcast that's in the top 1% of all podcasts. They're like, holy moly. <laughs> Very effective <laughs> marketing, right? It, it's yeah. good pitch. And it's that's and that's kind of the, the challenge, right? It's like, what does that even really mean? Like, what is it measured on what? Do you does, do we have anybody even have those numbers? There's surely some power law. There's all these like things underneath that once yeah. you really dig into it, all these numbers are kind of weird to think about. But but on the surface level, because I told this not one percent thing to my wife, she's like, "Whoa!" And <laughs> so for like people who don't like do math, it's like these things just are very impressive on the surface, right? But it's yeah, it's very interesting how how to use that effectively and and because never lie, right? But always like don't undersell necessarily is also a good idea. Yeah, well, and I I often tell people even who are in product marketing and engineering, it's so like the best thing you could do is you know go through the the writings of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, right? Like the idea of prospect theory and understanding how these heuristics work, it can help to guide you, you know, on these things. I had a, a founder; he was really incredible, such a like just an, an incredible knowledge that he brought to stuff. But he was almost like an like people thought him as like an absent-minded professor. He was the, he just had no bother with speaking. He's just like, he's always thinking. And when he did speak, it was meaningful and loud. He's Israeli, so he was argumentative. And we, it was a really fun relationship. And I remembered at one point, someone would talk about the product, like what's, you know, game-changing and unique way we solve this problem. And he would finally say like, stop, 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 time out, time out. 
did you have a lot of friends when you were in high school? And you'd start like, you'd be looking around going, oh, oh no, I'm in trouble. I don't know, I don't know what's going on here. So you'd say like, yes, you know, you'd start like, <laughs> and you'd say, was it because you were unique? <laughs> and you'd be like, no. They said, then why do you use the word unique to describe our product? And he just like, ah, oh, caught. Right? <laughs> he's like, what's an actual thing you can describe about what we do that's meaningful to somebody? Game changing, unique, industry first, like all these superlatives are are throwaways. However, we're on the front page of every marketing, you know, website, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, unique and and so on. And I think it's also uh, like wrapping a few threads together, right? It's around like. When you're looking at a product, trying to sell a product, and there are some things that are very important that are very hard to measure. If one of them is user experience, is it a good user experience? And everybody, and I get this question weekly, at least from a customer or potential customers, like, how is your user experience? Is it good? And I always answer like, that's a terrible question because all of my competitors and me, we will say we have the best user experience. You got to find a way to measure it somehow, right? And yeah. And I, and I tell them like, you, can, you, you can't trust me. Like, I'm just gonna say we're the best, but you have to find a way to figure it out. And my only way to give some form of validation of our user experience is that we have a self-service product. It has to be good in user experience. Otherwise people won't start using it without like talking to a salesperson. Whereas our competitors generally, you have to buy it before you can use it. So they don't need to have a good user experience. Maybe that's why you should trust us, but honestly, you gotta try it yourself. Yeah. So there's there's something about these like things that are hard to validate. You have to find a, a method of, of validating them anyways. Or yeah, it, I guess. I, I often describe user experience is like a painted room. When you walk out of a room and then someone paints it and you walk back into it, it just is done. It feels done. It looks done. So user experience, when it's done right, is non-obvious. Mm -hmm. User experience, when it's done wrong, very obvious. And retention and like there are measurements that you can have as far as the way that they engage in the product. But uh, yeah, it's such a it's such an odd thing that, to get asked. But we get it. I mean, this is unfortunate. This is how we're measured of like the words we describe as a fantastic user experience, you know low friction self sign up you know no sales calls all of these things you say in the end it's just it's the greatest thing where you can say just here it's zero dollars try it yeah see if you like i guess like if you if somebody could come up i maybe this is a hypothetical right but like if somebody could come up with a, a way to measure user experience in a, in a number of a product then it would help the enterprise buyers a lot because then they could put it in their requirement doc and give it a weight right. and say user experience 30 percent We'll use this uh, novel method for calculating user experience in a good way and then base it on that. But because there is none, then the vendor has to tell you how good the user experience is. And would you ever believe that? Honestly, that makes no sense, right? That's um, right. So they should either test it themselves or they should have like a, a third party company that will just like go and test products and give them a score one to five or something. But that's just, it's so hard, right? Nobody can do it. No, and it's it's like just it's so such a dangerous amount of influence. Like even NPS scores are like I 
you know, I know we all have to do this as an industry, but it's like the NPS score is such a, a false oh, because you go to your existing happy customer said, I need you to fill this NPS survey. <laughs> like you, you, you never go to a customer that churned and said, can you fill out an NPS survey for me? Please go to G2 and Captera and rate our product now that you, we know you hate it. Sure. Like that, nope. everybody has 4.8 or whatever on G2 and Captera because you only ask yeah. your favorite customers to go there, right? It makes no sense. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about feedback too is it's, and maybe I'll, middle of the road feedback is tough to get and that's what's interesting about your peer review this is i know we don't have much time left but i want to sort of tap into this real quickly you either get edges of feedback 10 out of 10 or one out of 10 would not use again how do you get effective use of four to seven you know like that middle of the road feedback and and how does that affect sort of your rubric and and inside the product yourself yeah so we never i never use a scale that's more than three levels myself because i've seen the one in ten problem on imdb and so on everybody's just they, i hate it i love it so i personally yeah. i always go for very small scales and um, i think one of the things we've done a lot of work on with rubrics is to make every level meaningful. So it's not numbers, like how good is this one to five? It's like, how good is it? And then the five levels will be very explanatory. Like it, I, I let's say it's a video pitch, right? That you're giving feedback to. There'll be three questions. One is about style. And then you'll have, how good was the style? And then there'll be like, the style was bad. It had some of these problems. The style was okay. It had some of these, but not some of these. The style was great. It had all of these. So it makes it very clear for the reviewer, am I giving one, two, or three here? It also makes it very clear for the receiver, like, okay, I got a two. To get a three, I need to do these things. So to like tie actionable, constructive feedback into the numerical ratings is the way to make really good uh, assessment rubrics, I guess. Um, but, and this is maybe even more important, right? Like feedback, you don't learn anything from getting feedback. You only learn if you do something with the feedback. You have to at least read it. You probably right. also have to think about it. And mostly you have to work with it. And I think that's what most people forget, right? They go to school, they hand in their paper, they get it back, they put the feedback in the backpack, right? And they never look at it. Feedback wasted. Like nobody learned anything from this. Maybe the teacher learned a lot, actually, because they wrote the feedback. And that's pretty hard. Um, but they're not supposed to be learning, right? It's the students. So... Feedback, everybody thinks about how good the feedback is, but nobody thinks about how do we get people to learn from the feedback. People totally forget that part, which is kind of scary, actually. So almost all of the work we've done since then has been, since we realized this, is like, how do we get people to use the feedback, learn from it? Yeah, it's the difference between an OODA loop and confirmation bias, right? Like you're just like simply I read it out of feedback what exact what I want to get out of it, and then I shed it altogether. Yeah. Like this is it's meant to support my current feeling. <laughs> yes. So, well, David, thank you very much. This has really been great. And for folks, I I I actually I would love to actually have you back and talk a bit more longer form about the the Y Combinator experience because that's an interesting one that I didn't want to dabble in because it's it's a very unique thing and given that you went through it and your your team makeup is very interesting to me so i think a lot of people could learn from that so we, we'd love to to catch up again on future but for folks that do want to get connected with you of course we'll have links to uh to eduflow and and make sure people can get access there 
uh, what's the best way if they wanted to reach out and give some feedback? <laughs> yeah, they can always uh, find me on all the social medias, right? Google my name. Um, I have my own name. <laughs> Nobody else has it. So you'll find me on all the social media profiles and everything. But yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, or write me an email, david at edgeflow.com. Perfect. Yeah, it's funny that that's how I ended up with so disco posse people are like at this point, I've just I don't even have to explain it anymore. I feel like it's just sort of stuck uh, at I it was a band that I was in. And if you Google Eric Wright, it's like easy E, uh, you know, is his name was Eric Wright. There's a, a very, you know, prominent US NFL football player named Eric Wright. There's a Canadian author named Eric Wright. I didn't stand a chance of getting social media anywhere for Eric Wright. So uh, my disco posse bands uh, was the one I picked as my domain name way back when. And so that's as unique that's as perfect. I can get. <laughs> well, good stuff, David. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Awesome to be here.